This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Let me have you turn in your Bibles to Romans, the 12th chapter, Romans chapter 12. And as you do that, a question. If I had to live my life over again, I would. I would. Probably there's all kinds of things that come to your mind when you ask a question like that. Probably for some of you, immediate. Because maybe in the past there was a choice that you would love to undo because of the ramifications that have occurred since you made that choice. Maybe it was misplaced priorities, either willfully or in ignorance. And you'd like to go back and you wish someone would have told you what you know now so you could rightly align those priorities. Maybe it's some action, some misspoken word at a moment with a friend that has created a tremendous wedge that you wish that you would go and pluck back out of the air and take it back. If I had to live my life over again, I would. You know, I thought about that this week. And for me personally, if I had to live my life over again, and I can think of a lot of things I would change, but at the top, I would love more. That's what I would do. You know, I'm about to reach the half-century mark. I'm close. I'm still enjoying being in the 40s, but I'm just so close. (laughs) And now looking over a half-century I realize as I've watched people and things and circumstances and all the alternatives people can pull out of their toolbox for life, that love is the one activity i found that never loses. You never regret it. Even when it's made you so vulnerable where people could have taken advantage of you for doing it, in the end, love never fails. I wish I would have loved more. I particularly regret that loss when it comes to leading this church. And I've thought about that this week. See, for at least half of my pastoral ministry, I believe my, my mission was to show the world how wrong it was. And I set about that course with great zealousness. Like so many other similarly afflicted evangelicals, I thought by hurling verbal hand grenades into the world concerning their wrongdoing that somehow it would rattle sinners back into their senses. To me, jabbing and stabbing the world was what I considered a way with with flawless logic and impeccable thinking added with the proclamation of God's Word and just a dash of anger. I thought that was the way to turn the world around. But you know, after a decade of doing so, it finally dawned on me that these kind of Sterile denunciations of sin were not only ineffective, but it was fueling an even greater hostility and alienation between the church and the community. And I was part of leading that. You know, Jesus told Peter at the garden, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And I have found that the sword of standing above the community and denouncing it. If you live by that sword, you'll also die by that sword. If I could do it all over again, I would put less time into pointing out the world's er errors 
and sinfulness and much more time into proving that Christianity was for real. And the difference between those positions and the difference between those polarities can be summed up in one word. And that word is love. It was that kind of love that sent Jesus Christ into a dirty manger in Bethlehem. But it was God not talking, it was God proving that He loved us and that He really was for us. That's such a great message. Because talk is cheap, but leading with love is not. It was this love that reached and captured a sinful world. It was not the communication of talk. It was the expensive rhetoric and communication of love. You know, I've learned that the world is tired of the church talking down to it. It really is. What the world waits to see is that what we have is better than what they have. That's what the world really wants to see. And when they see it, only then will they consider whether we are for real and really for them or not. You know, Jesus made a lot of radical New Testament statements. Some of those I love to preach, but there are some that you carefully avoid because they have a bite to them. And in the evangelical community, there are some that seem to be sadly missing. And I want to read you, just to get a taste of where we're going, some of these radical statements that when I hear them, I wince. I want to draw back. It seems even too radical. For instance, he said this, if someone were to slap you on the face, you need to turn your cheek so he can do it again. He said if a Roman soldier was to force a Christian to carry his gear, and the law in that day said that a Roman soldier had the right to make you carry it for a mile, that when you were finished with that journey, you should turn to him and ask him for the privilege of carrying it one mile more. That's radical. Jesus said if someone wanted your shirt, you should also give him your coat. He said that we are not only to love our friends, because anyone can do that, but we were to go into unknown territory and love our enemies as well. <laughs> Did Jesus really mean that? What was behind those kind of statements? Did He really mean it? And you know, He did. He really meant it. Because it served as proof that God really was among men and working through them. And the wisdom behind these radical behaviors was the way in which they spoke to the world so effectively and so convincingly. It makes it so much easier to hear about God after you've seen Him in some kind of unexplainable love action through another person you don't even know. And you see it and you go, whoa, what was that? Could that be God? And suddenly the world wants to listen. You know, I'm convinced that leading with a radical kind of love is the only way today's world will ever again listen to the modern day church. And I want to be a part of that. You know, in my early years as a Christian, uh, maybe in the simplicity of my faith, 
I did some of those kind of things. And I've enjoyed over the years at this church being a part of watching people do the unexplainable, these radical, creative, sometimes spontaneous acts of radical, real Christian love, and it gets the world's attention. And I was thinking back on some of those moments that I can look back on, and they're like mountain peaks for my life because they're so much better than me writing an article to the newspaper and saying how bad it is and what we should do. But I remember one occasion, I was driving through Dallas, Texas with a friend, and we stopped at a Dobbs house. Now, some of you know a Dobbs house is kind of like pancake house. And we pulled in there late night, and evidently some event had let out in the Dallas area, and this place was packed. And about the time we got to the counter, <laughs> there was an argument going on on the other side of the counter, and the cook quit. Just walked out. <laughs> Just threw down his apron and left. And this place was jam-packed with people. And all that was left was a young manager and a waitress. And we sat there, and you can just imagine people late at night, wanting food, angry. And before long, there was remarks made and cursing and, and demands. And suddenly, this waitress, by the time she got up to us with her little uh, notepad, tears were streaming down her face. She, just, she was just frazzled. And my friend Bruce was sitting next to me, and Bruce said, you know... When I was young, I was a short order cook. And I turned to him and I went, hmm. <laughs> and before she could write down her order, we said, you know, Bruce is a short order cook. And about 15 minutes later, we were on the other side of the counter cooking at the Dobbs house. <laughs> and we cooked all night. And I never will forget, it was 2 a.m. and we locked the door and we said, we'll help you clean up. And we mopped the place and washed the dishes. And you know, at the end of that time, that waitress had tears streaming down her face again. But this time, it was because God was real. Get the feeling? Those are the kind of radical actions in the 20th century that kind of feel like the radical acts of love in the first century. But you know, somewhere after seminary, I got dumb. <laughs> I did. And I lost my way in that regard. And I began to think that preaching at the world with what I had learned was a better first touch than loving the world with the few things that I had. And I want you to know, it was a great mistake. And I wish I could do it over again. But I can't. But what I can do, and what I want to do, is be a part of a church that is moving back to that kind of radical activity. And it's that kind of love that's introduced to us in the book of Romans chapter 12. All this theology now comes crashing down on the shoreline and it asks the question, are you for real? I know what you know, but are you for real? And it gives us a little list to measure ourselves by whether the world will know us as real. Notice it's a passage, by the way, as you scan your eyes over Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, it's a passage of really short but very stout love statements. It's much like the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But what I want to do is I want to move through this passage of Scripture and let you get a sense of the conviction of radical Christianity that's there. And if you don't walk out of here with a little bit of conviction, you come up here after the service and we'll give you your offering back. Okay? Because you need to have it back. 
This passage breaks down very neatly into two parts. The first I call in verses 9 through 13, the radical assignments of Christian love, things that we're being challenged by. And then in verses 14 to 21, there's these radical associations of Christian love. And I want you to know as we go through it, this is not something for you to sit back in an easy chair out there and just simply critique. This is how Jesus Christ expects us to love. He says we can love like this. And if we do love like this, the world will consider us real. So let's take a look first at these four assignments. The first is found just simply in verse 9. All these, like I said, are short statements. Verse 9 reads this way. Let love be without hypocrisy. The better word there, by the way, is just genuine. I think he's really saying genuine. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, what he's really saying here is the first assignment for love, real love, is to stay balanced. It's a balance between (laughs) clinging and hating. Clinging and abhorring. And that seems a little confusing when you're talking about love, but there are two sides to genuine love. The first side is an intolerance of evil. That's part of love. The second side is a refusal to give up on doing good. That's why he says cling to doing good. And what happens is if we try to do good, but we're kind of convictionless about evil, then our evil gets mixed with our good and we come out looking like hypocrites, right? On the other hand, if we're real intolerant of evil, but we've kind of given up on this world as some Christians have, thinking that doing good will make really any difference, so we just denounce the world, we don't come out looking like Christians. We come out looking hard. Right? And that's why genuine love is a balance between these two. On the one hand, intolerant of evil. On the other hand, refusing to ever believe that love doesn't accomplish something. See it there? The Revised Standard Version even says on the poor what is evil, it actually goes even stronger than that. It says, hate what is evil. And you go, gosh, hate is a part of love? Oh, absolutely. Hate is a part of love. God is love, but God hates a lot of things. Do you know God hates solemn assemblies? He tells us that in His Word. He hates people who come in and sit and listen, and absorb, but have no intention of doing anything. And he says in his prophets, I hate your solemn assemblies, and I hate your offerings that you give when you think like that. In the book of Proverbs, he tells us that he hates a lot of things, that there are some specific things that are a particular abomination to him. For instance, he says that he hates haughty eyes, some proud spirit. He hates that. He says he hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. It thinks up wickedness. Hates that. He hates feet that run rapidly to evil. He hates a person, he says, who spreads division among brothers. He hates that. But in hating that, he can love us well. And listen, when we're intolerant of evil in our own life, And people today in a relativistic age have such a difficult time saying what they won't do. But when we decide with conviction what we won't do, really what it's doing is freeing us up to love radically with the energy and effort that we gain back from letting the evil go. So how does a Christian love radically? Well, he loves radically by staying balanced between what he doesn't like 
and what he's committed to for the good. Secondly, I want you to notice that a second assignment of real love is to stay close. Look at verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Do you feel that staying close there in that verse? Be devoted, he says. You know, the ingredient called devotion is a word that simply means that you refuse to leave. You're going to stay in there. Had a couple come to me not long ago. They had both gone through really heartbreaking divorces back in their past. And over time, they'd come to the church, found Christ. They were married together. And we were just talking about their marriage together with this blended family. And the wife said, you know, on our wedding day, my husband told me, he said, uh, he said you know, we're going to make this marriage work if it kills me. About a year later, it was killing him. Or at least he thought it was, and he was ready to leave. And about the time he was ready to go for the door, she said, uh, 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 you're not dead yet. <laughs> and he remembered what he said, but rather than just trying to suck it up, it drove him even closer to Christ. And they have a successful marriage at this time. But you know what it was? It was that refusing to leave. That's what devotion means. That made that possible. That made that marriage work. Staying close is hard. It's hard for marriages. It's hard for friendships. Staying close is hard in the church and for two very obvious reasons. First, we're all different. And over time in close quarters, our differentness becomes irritating, doesn't it? And secondly, we all want our way. And in close quarters, that inevitably leads to conflict because we want it done our way. And that's why Paul sets forth this statement about love, about being devoted and giving preference. Because that kind of love addresses both those issues. Notice, by being devoted, it combats our differentness. Because by leading with the love of devotion, we stay in it until we work through it. And secondly, I want you to notice it combats our wants over others' desires because it leads with a love that gives preference to others. And you know what? We've enjoyed that here in this church for 21 years of people giving preference to one another in honor rather than competing. And all God has done is gone and blown His breath of life into our congregation. See, radical Christianity loves by staying close with devotion and giving preference to one another. Thirdly, I want you to know the assignment of real love. It says it's to stay focused. Look at verse 11 and 12, and particularly to stay focused in serving the Lord because that, I think, is the key phrase found in verse 11. It says, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And in serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now, there are two phrases I want you to look at. Look at the text for a second. And there are two phrases there. The one that I think are the most important. In verse 11 is serving the Lord. And verse 12 is the energy you get in serving the Lord. And that comes by being devoted to prayer. Here's why. When we, seek, when we cease to focus on God, when we cease to go and receive power from God through our prayer life, we will quickly lose power and perspective in serving God. I want you to know, that happens to me. That always happens to everybody. Your prayer life is your energy life. 
And you lose that, and in time, serving the Lord just becomes dry duty. Because through prayer, you keep perspective and you find power. But if you lose that rather than serving the Lord out of that power and perspective, what happens is you find yourself, just like verse 11 warns, you find yourself lagging behind others. People are serving, they're energetic, and you're involved, but it's like a runner who's out of gas. You find yourself tired and things feel heavy. Exciting things to others become stale to you. You lose interest in spiritual things. And in time, you move on to verse 12. You, not, you don't become fervent in spirit. You lose your spirit and you give up hope. And the very first next tribulation just makes you want to throw things down and quit. And why? Because in serving the Lord, you're not devoted to prayer. Those go hand in hand together. Have you ever been there? If you've been in ministry any length of time, as a community group leader or someone working in missions or learning center, there comes a place in your life where it starts feeling like religion and it feels hard and tired and heavy. And this text tells us, if you, don't, if you want to avoid retiring on the job, and as Christians, we don't retire till we're gone. Okay? If you don't want to retire on the job, you have to keep the lifeline up because that's where the focus needs to be. Stay focused. And where's the focus? Up. Because from up comes power down to serve the Lord with diligence, with a hot heart, with hope, and not backing down no matter how big the tribulation. Stay focused and don't retire on the job. Fourthly, he tells us this. Stay available in, verses, in verse uh, 13. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Wow, that's so hard in our world today because we live at such a fast pace and time and our schedules are so packed. We become, as Christians, so much like Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? We become the Pharisee in that story who we see this need, this wounded person, but because we're on a clock, we go to the other side of the street and pretend we didn't see because we just don't have the time. I want you to know, in the midst of your packed schedule and frantic pace, Jesus Christ doesn't back down with radical Christian love. He says real love finds the time. No matter how busy you are, maybe you need a good review of that time because real love makes time to meet needs, to soothe a broken heart, to pursue a straying friend, to encourage a needy brother, just to be with your children. During the holidays, real love makes time for that. Real love makes time for welcoming a newcomer that you bump into at church. And you, you had your schedule planned, but real love alters that schedule because it's radical. Then the world begins to listen because you're loving. You're leading with love. One of the radical assignments of Christian love that I think is impossible without going to God on a regular basis, is to stay available to others. What needs are around you right now that maybe you're walking to the other side of the street to ignore? Especially at this time of year when the world needs to hear from us, not in tinsel, not in lights, but in love. Well, those are the radical assignments. Now Paul turns in verse 14 to some radical Associations, four types of people that Christians need to, 
to move into, to make an impact on. The first is the persecutor. And I want you to know in verse 14, real Christians love the persecutor. Look at verse 14. I mean, it's a strong statement. It doesn't get easier as we go forward. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Man, what a tough statement, especially in our age of rage. Where everybody's polarized politically, religiously, ideologically, and, and kind of the fad is to be angry at the other guy, to denounce the other guy. And yet that's even more reason why Christians need to display something radical to today's world. You know, there is a special power when we bless in the midst of cursing. The Proverbs say, a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, in moments like that, even with a clerk in a store who's been harried and maybe not paying attention, you can bless and curse not. You can give grace rather than a growl because it changes hearts. You know, some time ago, and I love to tell this story, but some time ago I was at, I was driving into a restaurant. Actually, it was Shorty Smalls right up the street. And I was going to lunch there, and it was pouring down rain, and all the parking spaces were filled except one. And I'd been waiting for this guy to back out, and he finally did, so I was sitting there. And about that time, around the corner comes this big Cadillac. Headlights wide open, kind of like a big animal looking for something. And he saw that spot. And I saw that spot except I was closer to the spot. So I pulled in because it was my right. And when I got out of the car and got my umbrella in the rain, I noticed that the Cadillac had pulled up alongside me. And the guy kind of tooted his horn and he was in there with the windows rolled up going. <laughs> and I knew I was getting an earful. So I thought, kind of in this wild moment, what to do? Because it just, it, was, it just was, I don't know, it was just incredible. So I went over there and tapped on the windshield. And suddenly the electric window came down, you know. And this guy was looking at me like this, cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And I said, listen, excuse me, I know you need this parking space. Why don't you just give me a second, I'll back out and you can have it. He just sat there. <laughs> just stared at me for a moment. It was like he couldn't take it in. And the window just came up. <laughs> and he drove off. But I delivered the blessing for the curse. It makes such an impact, really. Rather than duking it out in the parking lot, there was peace there. You know, something on a more serious vein, I remember that there was a gentleman that I knew from a number of associations who just delighted in slandering our church. Just exaggerating, telling things that weren't true, taking any pot shot he could. And I remember there came a place in his life where a tragedy occurred in his family. And because of our association of sorts, I remember one day driving by his house, knowing of his loss and stopping, and feeling compelled just to go in and share his pain. And you know, to knock on that door and see the surprise on his face in the midst of that tragedy and the embrace that ensued, the slander forever stopped. You know why? Because that's the power of blessing in the face of curse. And oh, how our world in an age of rage needs to see the real thing. Real Christianity. Well, that's one association. Notice the second one. I call it 
Loving the emotional. Look at verse 15. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, I love the saying that goes like this. A sorrow shared is half a sorrow. And a joy shared is a joy made double. Isn't that true? Haven't you been with somebody? And there are some of you who are uniquely gifted in connecting in an emotional way. But to tell of something you're excited about and to see a person's face light up and they join with you in the moment, boy, there's just something about that that just takes it even higher. Or to be in a moment of agony, of, of a sense of a sinkhole that you think no one understands, and you're talking to someone and their eyes begin to glisten with moisture and a tear kind of starts rolling down their cheek and they connect with you and they finish one of your phrases and you know they're there with you. Well, when those moments occur, you feel uniquely loved. Do you know God loves us like that? You know, Jesus Christ modeled that. He was always identifying with people's emotion. He rejoiced with people at a wedding in Cana in John 2. He was wowed by a man's faith, and he said so right to him. He marveled at his faith, and he entered into the joy of that moment with that gentleman. He celebrated with Matthew at his coming out party when he brought all his non-Christian friends, rebels in the community, and told them all of Jesus there that he had become a Christian. He wept with the family over the death of his friend Lazarus, even knowing that in a few minutes he would raise that same person from the dead, but that didn't stop him from crying. He moved into people's lives and recognized their fear and their anxiety and their doubt and their loneliness, and he walked freely into it to share it with them. And you know, there will come a day when he will greet us in heaven, and he will feel with us the joy of our escape from this life. He will identify with it. You will walk in and when you meet Him eye to eye, when He sees you, He will feel that new freedom with you because He Himself was one, at one time set free. And you'll know it. And you'll connect at the gut with it. The joy of that experience. That's our God. Radical Christian love doesn't fear people's emotions. It joins into people's emotions because we're called to love the emotion. Thirdly, we're called to love the lowly. Look at verse 16. It says, Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And you know when you read that there's such conviction there because especially in a West Little Rock church, because real Christianity is not a status religion. It's a sinner's religion. And at that level and that evaluation, we all find a common ground and an equal footing. And in the first century, what just captured the heathen world's attention as cruel and as abysmal as it was, as selfish and self-absorbed, but what drew the attention of the first century world was the the unique ability of Christians to love each other equally. You know, there's story after story that you can read in first century literature of moments like when a Roman centurion walks into a worship service and he goes down with everybody watching this military man that, that had power over people and he walks down and in the worship service sits next to his slave and greets him with a holy kiss. The world steps back and goes, what's that? That's unexplainable. 
That's classlessness. That's what communism killed 50 million people to get and didn't get it. That's what the flower power of the 60s held up as the ideal state, but ended up dumbing it all down in crassless love and drug addiction. But there it is, right there. Reality. And when that happens, the world listens. Charles Evan Hughes was appointed Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1930. And when he moved to Washington, being a Christian, he desired to move his church letter to this new church in Washington. And the church there had a tradition that it would welcome all its new members by bringing them in front of the church. And so on the Sunday that he was there, there were a number of people being welcomed into the church. And the first name called out was the name Ah Ling. Ah Ling was this Chinese laundryman who had moved from San Francisco a few months earlier and set up a little tiny shop right down the street. And when Ah Ling's name was called first, he walked to the front of this very distinguished church and walked over to the right of the pulpit and stood by himself. And then what occurred next was a number of people called out from among the church ranks who were senators and military men and distinguished Washingtonians who had joined the church. But as they came forward, for whatever reason, maybe it was even unconscious, they chose to go to the left side of the pulpit. And there they stood as a group with Arlene on the right by himself until just Chief Justice Hughes was called. And this very distinguished, honored man found himself warmly next to Arlene, speaking by his mere presence on the stage a sermon that has been passed down from generation to generation because it was so powerful. You know, one of the things that needs to take place, how it will take place, I'll never know. But only when the church is mixed color. Only then. Not separate class churches, separate race churches. Only when it begins to mix freely will the world sit up and go, how did you do that? How did you bring that about? And you know what? The thing we've got to commit ourselves to as a church, because that's I swear, we've got to commit our church to moving that direction for the glory of God. Only real love can bring a man to do things like Chief Justice Hughes did. Only real love can bring the haves and the have-nots together. Only real love can conquer elitism and a haughty mind and racism. The world can't do it. It can meet with committees. It can give government funding. It can press all at once with force, but it can't make people who are different love. Only the radical love of Jesus Christ can do that. And we need to measure ourselves by that. Lastly, and probably the most difficult here in this passage, is we're called to love the enemy. Oh yeah, that's what it says. Verse 17, look, never pay back evil to evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Now I wish I'd learned this verse in seminary. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Now I want you to please note as I read through that, that these verses are, speak, are speaking specifically to the issue of returning a wrong for a wrong. See it there? Evil for evil. That is not to be confused with returning an appropriate response of justice for something that's done wrong. Let me illustrate. Here's a young man and he's goofing off at work. He's got a job, but he's goofing off at work and not really taking it seriously, failing in his responsibility. So his employer, who's a Christian, notices that. And, and in that kind of observation comes to the conclusion that he needs to talk to this young man about it. Now, he could have done it a wrong way, returned evil for his evil by going and dressing him down in front of all the other employees, by cursing him or calling him ugly names and firing him on the spot. But this particular employer did something much different. He called the young man into a private session. And in a gentle and fatherly fashion, he carried forth justice for his evil. He said this, Son, I don't know how we're going to get along without you, but starting Monday morning, we're certainly going to try. <laughs> now that's justice for evil. This speaks for evil for evil. And there are many situations where we want to do to others not what we would have them do unto us, but rather what they did to us. And what they did to us was wrong. And we want revenge. We want to get back even. We want to make them pay for our pain. But you know, in that kind of moment, we need to understand we're not Christian. Because if we really take the words of Scripture seriously, we need to fall down on our face in the midst of that kind of revengeful spirit and seek after the living God to help us get a clearer, more powerful perspective and to come to a place where we say no to that response and believe in a better way, a better way that trusts in God's ultimate justice because there it is. Vengeance is mine. Believe me, I know all this stuff. I'm taking it into account. And putting that bitterness aside and now looking at it in radical Christian love, which would see that very same moment as an opportunity and radically responding to evil with good. It says in doing so, you keep burning coals upon their head. Most people like that because they think, yeah, he, God's going to punish them. But you know, that phrase is not a symbol for punishment. In the first century, a guy who carried a bag of burning coals on his head, that was an act of repentance not punishment. So when you respond with evil, I mean, with good for evil, and he heaps burning coals, that means this guy's come into his senses because of your radically different response. You know, it was that kind of love that brought Jane Roe into the kingdom of God. Remember Jane Roe, as in Roe versus Wade? The person who was used as the icon for abortion rights, whose case unleashed, abortion on our land and still does. The one who was celebrated all over the country by abortion rights advocates, she was the heroine, so to speak, of all those people. But did you know that over time as she would attend these events and go to these clinics and speak, and she was continually interacting, regardless of what's painted in the media, with Christians who reached out to her in love. Christians who said, we'll pray for you. Christians who had compassion on her. And those responses, plus the growing emptiness of her own soul, caused her to one day at an abortion clinic to walk from this side to this side. 
and to join the pro-life movement to receive Jesus Christ and to be baptized into the faith. And at that moment, she became radically different, but it was only because of a radical love that reached out to her. You know, when David had the opportunity to kill the very man who sought to kill him, and that was King Saul, he chose instead to spare his life, which just blew Saul away. And here's what he said. He said to Saul, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand, I'm going to leave that to God, but my hand will not touch you. And you know what Saul's response was in that moment, knowing he had been so vulnerable and David could have killed him but didn't? It says that Saul responded by falling to the ground and weeping. And Saul said this, You, David, are more righteous than I. May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. And you know what? God did reward him. In fact, later on, without David doing anything, God gave David Saul's kingdom. But here's what David did. David gave Saul the opportunity to repent. Not just to build his case, even more that he should kill this young man, but the opportunity to repent. Wouldn't it be incredible if that was the face we were presenting to the world where it just didn't give them more ammunition to say we're extreme, but to say, you're righteous. You're better than me. And give them an opportunity to repent as well. This is what radical Christianity does. It loves the enemy with the supernatural love that causes the world to do something it's not doing today, and that's listen. Now see, what I've been detailing for you in these passages is the kind of lifestyle that proves Christianity. When words fail. What the world needs now from the church is what? <laughs> love. Sweet love, right? The world sings about it, just can't live it. The church needs to live it. And when the church lives it, and when the world sees it, even in small amounts, I'm not talking about you becoming Jesus. I'm talking about you doing one little kind of thing, maybe to a teller at the bank, maybe to a, a friend in need, maybe taking some time out of your busy schedule. But when we begin to do that at large amounts, large levels and small amounts, what happens is the world has no defense against real love. And it listens to real love. I want to close this morning by mentioning to you what you can expect if you choose to love that way. They're on your outline. I'm just going to fill them in and read through them here for just a moment. Here's what you can expect. If you seek to love like this, if you walk out of here saying, gosh, that is so pure. I need to be that kind of person. Here's what you can expect. You can expect, as you try, to be driven to God <laughs> because you're not going to be able to love like that without Him. If you try, you'll fail. But if you go to Him and say, God, help me. Help me learn how to do this. Teach me. Move me. Speak to my heart. Give me moments where I can do something radical for you. He'll do it. Maybe somewhere in the message as I've gone down through these little stout statements, most of you in Christ, probably one of those, an image came to mind. A person. A situation. Don't let that go. That's the first invitation into radical love. Some of you carrying a bitterness, you're still trying to get even with somebody for 20 years. Wouldn't it be nice if today whew, that was blown away?
Some of you have a family member or someone's odds with. Maybe go to God and ask Him for, what's a, what's a way I can present you to them through love? But remember, it's impossible without Him. Secondly, notice this. If you do choose to love like this, expect to spend more and more time blessing a resistant world and less time complaining, critiquing, and cursing it. The world will welcome that change, by the way. They will. And by the way, I want you to know, that's what I-square is about. It's not about money, buildings, or anything else. It's about this kind of lifestyle. A church that is so consumed with the idea of loving the world that it would move its whole self to moving out into the ranks of the world to radically love it. Thirdly, I want you to know we should expect this love to reach more and more people for Christ while turning off less and less. Unfortunately, I think today's brand of Christianity does just the opposite. It reaches less and less people while turning off more and more. And I want to be the first to start repenting of this. We need to repent of it. And then finally, if you love like this at all, even in small amounts if you love like this, and God loves even the small amount, the widow's might of radical love. If you love like this, expect your Christianity to become real in the eyes of others. Now you may not feel like you're doing that much better, but they will because they will see real Christianity. I love the children's story of Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you may have read The Velveteen Rabbit. It's about a toy rabbit that was given at Christmas stuffed toy rabbit and he gets among all the toys and life kind of goes a certain way and he begins to hear about this thing called real. And so one day in the toy box he talks to the skin horse, this old skinned horse about what is real. What is real? asked the rabbit one day while they were lying side by side. Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. It's not just playing with others. It's not just playing at all, but really, really loving. And then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, though, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to toys who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But you know, these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't ever be ugly again. You know, once the church becomes real, we can't ever be ugly again either. And that's the challenge of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for these really stout words. And we all confess we are not worthy of them we fall so short in front of them. 
And yet it's to that kind of lifestyle that you, the lover of mankind, continually draws to. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for my leadership and the leadership of those who you've raised up here. Oh God, help us not to drive this church, not to force this church to this kind of lifestyle. But oh God, help us to become that kind of church. I pray that we would be known by others, not by the snarls on our faces or the growls, not by the I told you so, but by radical acts of real love. Speak to us, Father, about the world we live in. Speak to us about the actions we need to take to show the face of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.